1: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guests for episode 133 are famed trumpeter John Hassel and his longest-serving cohort in his current band, Rick Cox. John started performing professionally in the late 60s. He played on Terry Riley's In Sea, 1968. And with Lamonte Thornton Young in the 70s, he released the first of his 18 or so solo albums in 1977. What you're hearing right now is a piece called Chemistry from his third release, Fourth World, Volume 1, Possible Musics, credited to John and Brian Eno in 1980. John describes this concept of fourth world music as, quote, "...a unified, primitive-slash-futuristic sound, combining features of world-ethnic styles with advanced electronic techniques." In addition to doing trumpets and keyboards and electronics on his own albums, John has been a guest on albums by Talking Heads, Peter Gabriel, Katie Lang, Annie DeFranco, Rye Cooter, Tears for Fears, David Sylvian, and many others. We're focusing today largely on a two part album release that is the result of work that's been going on since 2015 or so. Pentimento Volumes 1 and 2 will first discuss Unknown Wish from 2020's Pentimento Volume 2, Seeing Through Sound, and then look to Manga Scene from Pentimento Volume 1's Listening to Pictures 2018. We'll then look all the way back to his first solo album, 1977's Vernal Equinox, to its opening track, Toucan Ocean. And finally, we'll turn to his last release before this double album thing, 2009's Last Night the Moon Came Dropping Its Clothes in the Street. We'll hear the title track from that. For more information, please see johnhassell.com. Now, I found after I interviewed John that I wanted more information on how these last albums were actually made. So I did a second interview asking about the same songs with Rick Cox, who is a guitarist, a clarinetist, a soundtrack composer. He does a lot of stuff with Thomas Newman. And talking to Rick was very clarifying. But it makes my presentation here a little more complicated than usual because you're gonna hear me ask a question, you're first gonna hear John talk for a while, then you're gonna hear Rick's voice. They sound very different, it shouldn't be that confusing. But sometimes you're not going to know who I was asking the question to until somebody answers. And of course, these two guys were not in the room together. They refer to each other in the third person. And what makes this even a little more confusing is that the third main bandmate here, John von Ziegman, well, his name is also John. So listen carefully. I think the story will be as clear as it can be. Really, the way these guys make music is quite mysterious. Because on the one hand, it's jazz improvisation where the group members wordlessly mind meld. But on top of that, these recent albums were very much collections of sound recorded over many years, combined and excerpted and processed until nobody can remember what was done when and exactly by whom. So this one really is a trip. I hope you enjoy it. To learn more about this podcast, please see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you go to Patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music, you can support the show. And in this case, I will have a bonus recording, a little more with Rick, with one of the songs that he wrote for John's album. Here we go. I will have played a little bit of Chemistry, 1981. I don't know, was that a commercial breakthrough? I don't know. It's not even I mean, in terms of the sales? Or just in terms of getting you hooked up with, I mean, that's why I know of you, is because through your work with David Sylvian and Peter Gabriel and Brian Eno and that whole crowd, but that's just because I'm more of a rock guy than a jazz guy. Though I've definitely put in my time with Miles Davis, so I really appreciate the Bitches Brew sort of thing. And yeah, we get way back here in chemistry, it seems like you've established some of the stylistic things, the strong bass lines with percussion that works off of that and doesn't have a lot of symbols. and then this trumpet that has harmonizer on it, maybe, and sort of sounds like, a, I would think it was synth if nobody told me otherwise. Is that kind of around somewhere in there, 80, 79, something like that, where you kind of Got that
2: established? It's all merging into one one big glob right now. It's hard for me to like make a distinction between then and now, that kind of thing. Because I recognize if using chemistry as one of the touchstones to perhaps reflect off of in order to get at what's going on here in this new one. Yeah, that's definitely not unrelated. We played chemistry a lot.
0: That was one of our big live numbers. It has Percy uh, Jones on bass. So good. This record, that's the one that I wore out on my way driving from LA to New York City in the fall of 81, where I stayed in New York for like six months and came back here. And then I met John in 1997. But this was the only thing of his I'd ever heard. It was enough for me. And so I was really happy to meet him and even happier when he called me to work with him some more.
1: Let's just get right to the present. I wanted to play Unknown Wish, which is the second single from this new album, Seeing Through Sound, Pentimento Volume 2, 2020. Do you want to say a little about this
2: project and this song before we hear it? In the fourth world, which I think you may be acquainted with and from my own invention, it allows for a much wider sound spectrum. So I know chemistry had a very special kind of vibe, one I, I liked, and yes, it does relate to chemistry.
1: So I see in the literature here, this Pentimento series, I have a quote from one of the promo pieces, reappearance in a painting of earlier images, forms, or strokes that have been changed and painted over. So so there's something, this idea of painting, I mean, it's seeing through sound, so that you're taking a painterly approach. Can you say a little about that before we hear the song? The
2: title, Seeing Through Sound... Seeing by way of sound, that's one of the other angles. I meant for the equivocal meaning to be there, any name that is related to a product of any kind. I think the more angles that it has, the better it is, unless you're, of course, just selling toothpaste. And that seeing through sound, along with pentimento, a little knowledge of what pentimento means in the art world, it's you know, mainly a term for painters, you know, like painting over something, and either painting over something completely or using a part of what is there to extrapolate outward from that. So I think it's kind of useful thing. The other, perhaps more esoteric, meaning of seeing through sound, it can be seeing by way of sound or seeing through sound. Well, the through sound, I got. Probably the last thing I wrote before I stopped writing essays about these things was that I was associating it with jazz, especially like a Dixie Dixieland or something that was a uh, blues, actually. You know, it was about a time and a feeling and where that came from. The original blues idea came from the deprivation and discrimination and all those things. So here I started thinking, well, our current blues is the pandemic, the difficulty of you know, what this is throwing into our all of our lives, right? You know, uh, just dumped on us and you you find a way to get through it or not get through it. My kind of most fervent desire for at least to be pertinent to this time is to think of it as being a form of that, a form of the blues and uh, evolution or in a uh, far down the line developed sense. So I don't know how much it means except in the very kind of subtle undertone.
1: Now, I don't even have the first clue here how you put these together. Can you tell me what's the canvas on which you're laying the other things? Is it the percussion and bass first? Is it this flickering, treated piano thing? Is it the trumpet? What's the order in which you're doing these things?
2: Hats off to the three main principles other than myself. Rick Cox as an instrumental and throwing together thing, just extremely inventive, and John Von Ziegen also. They're very much a part of creating the kind of final sound object so pretty hard to try and separate it and say well we did this layer and then we did that layer and then whatever so Naturally, I'm just trying to tell, like, search for metaphors that might mean something to someone without knowing the inside story on the way musicians get together. And so, it's not like having Dixieland, where you know the person that comes into the room is either a bass player or a pianist or a trumpet player or something like that. You know, so it's really each one of us in this group have a, our own sort of specific way of seeing things and hearing things. So I could never separate those things, other than the fact. We have that kind of fourth world banner flying above, and so anything goes.
1: Does that mean that it's jamming in a room as the first pass? So, was this done pre pandemic, or were you throwing files back and forth over the internet for people to?
2: Very pre pandemic. Okay. So, that's why I'm just making the association as a, a leap.
0: Starting in around the year 2000. We always rehearsed it at my studio, and I always recorded every rehearsal multi-track and then also running a rough mix at the same time. And I would give those tracks to whoever was here. For several years, it was me, John, and a bass player named Peter Freeman. And then Peter was out, and basically John Vaughn was the more permanent replacement. So it was always three of us for most rehearsals before we would go out and do shows where we'd go to Europe. Sometimes Hugh Marsh, if he was in town working on a a film, he'd come by and we'd have him involved too. What happened before these two records was the last time we went to Europe was 2015. We played Copenhagen. We played in London. We were supposed to do a show that night. It was a Saturday. And at the sound check that afternoon, John got fairly ill. We had to leave. Everything there, like all my gear and John Vaughn's gear was all set up on stage. Everything turned on, ready to play that night. And I called the paramedics. They came with a gurney and took them to the hospital. So that was the last time we did a show. 2015 in London, it would have been. So when we got back, that's when we started assembling all this material for one CD. And it ended up there was just so much. That's when they decided to release it as two separate volumes, one and then one later. And that's why, you know, it's all sort of confusing to me because, you know, we would go back and find ideas from rehearsals or John would walk in the door while I was working on something and he'd say, what's that? You know, let's use that. So it was kind of like a pastige. It really was. That's my impression of it, as opposed to like saying we're going to sit down and play together. It was really more of uh, putting this track with that and overdubbing here, or just throwing a lot of different stuff into a pot and mixing it up. And that took a couple of years. I think we worked on that, I'd say, from 2015 through 2017. And then John had learned how to use Ableton Live well enough that he could go home, and then he would make changes at home. He would maybe take a track out or add one or something, and I kind of lost track of things at that point.
1: So just this kind of sputtering, orchestra tuning up things how it starts.
0: I have hundreds of digital processing plugins that I use. I'm always getting the latest stuff that work in film scoring. Whenever I got anything new, I would show John, and then we would usually incorporate it. For example, EarCam TS was not unusual, but it did it better than any other where you could really slow things down or speed them up or transpose it without it sounding like it was Mickey Mouse at all, you know, like slowing down a record, or... uh, Another thing we used a lot was like that vocal on that track. That's been TS. That's been slowed down.
1: I wasn't sure if that was a treated trumpet or if someone was actually singing or if that was violin.
0: I have it someplace. uh I can almost tell you who it is. Oh, so it's
1: not even one of you guys. It's a sample that's slowed down. Yeah, it's some okay. kind
0: of sample that John, that I then further processed or something, or I can't remember now how. You know, I as a sampler only ever sampled sounds I made myself. I never sampled things off records. I never did that. But John would come in with some stuff like Les Baxter or different things. Like there's that one kind of, uh I don't know what it's called. It's kind of like a Boston Nova th- feel to it. Years ago, he had a technique where he would put a CD player into fast rewind and it was kind of like the you know, where you'd hear digitized slices, right? But really fast. So we put that in TS, for example, and it made that dreaming track. That was a really slowed down version of this fast rewind CD, or maybe it was fast forward, I don't remember, but you can reverse it really easily
2: also. We each have our own kind of sound palette and specialty. I guess that's what a musician these days is. it means. It means somebody who has familiarity with electronics and with non-electronic music. So it's the fourth world idea being a kind of a banner that says everything in the world is possible to use. You're talking about...
1: Pentimento makes an understanding that the thing that we're initially hearing up front is this what sounds like an electronically treated piano that's all sputtering. And that very much sounds like it was something that was recorded over, you know, and then we're hearing the remains of it on the tape. Clearly, you said that's not literally what was done. Do you have any idea who was making that sound in particular? Was that you providing that foundational thing at the very beginning of the song?
2: Probably me with a keyboard and there were multiple takes to put this together, but I don't think so. Actually, I think it just came together because of the fact that we've been together for a long time and our taste has sort of grown into a symbiotic thing.
1: This is news to me just that, no, this actually is a jazz recording. This is not a piece of electronica where you sat down and crafted this crazy sound, and that was one layer, and then you did some trumpet over it. With the effect that's on the trumpet, it just seems like picking a particular effect, whether it's for your trumpet, for your guitar, whatever, requires planning. Do you remember on this song, what is your setup? Like there's a harmonizer pedal of some sort. Can you describe a little what you're playing through here?
2: I'm playing keyboard. Also, and the use of electronics on the keyboard and I'll have a pedal where I can stand a chord to add a fourth or something above or below every chord. Then, you know, I can combine them in in various ways, that kind of thing.
1: I noticed there was a particular kind of snake charmer riff. which was one of the only times that it settles into an identifiable mode. There's a pretty consistent baseline that's at least establishing, okay, here's a tonal center. But then other than that, I mean, all this keyboard spitting, sputtering thing, are you thinking in terms of like what key we're in or this is the mode or that's just entirely, that's part of the fourth world thing that's just entirely open?
2: It is entirely open. Two people that I mentioned, John Zagan, who's a bass player, mostly, and Rick Cox, who has an amazing palette that no one else has, and so he's certainly part of that. Are you setting up loops for
1: the, any of the percussion on this? In other words, is every note being played as it comes, or is some of it just set up as a loop, and then you can overdub it with something else?
2: Even a loop would be an improvisational gesture. But that's something that can be made on spot. It's not something that has to be pre-existing. But that's part of music these days is that you're sitting there and you have a foot pedal or whatever. And you can grab a little phrase and repeat it or do something else with it.
1: Are you thinking as you're going through this of, you know, what the mood is going to be or this is really just listening to each other and just seeing what
2: happens? Well, we've been together on stage and concerts and things and tours quite a bit. So it's a group decision.
1: Even just the idea that you said this is supposed to be something in the neighborhood of blues. And I definitely hear that in your choice of trumpet lines, that it has that sort of mournful back alley that is on. What makes so much of your stuff so relaxing? In fact, we're going to close here with the last night the moon came at the end of this interview, which is another one that just, you know, really has, that's sort of what a familiar touchstone, I think that makes it so that the rest of, you know, if it was purely treated piano then I wouldn't know quite what to do with it. I guess my question about the mood here is that you've got that such relaxing, slow blues element, but then this sputter, it's just got this frantic undertone. Well, I guess, again, this is the pentimento thing that it just really seems, I'm hearing a lot of clashing of different energy levels, I guess. Like, are you conducting folks as you go sometime here? You know, okay, now we're reaching the climax. Like, do you know how long the song is going to be?
2: No, it's all kind of an intuitive thing. You know, we have a uh, a common vocabulary and sometimes it's built around a little electronic thing that might do something, you know, that might transpose things or give you two notes instead of one back again and that kind of thing. And so just learning to play things, uh, just coming up with whatever it is that you have to touch and then somebody else happens to hear and then they re- relate to that. And that's really the way it comes together. Let
1: me play you one more little chunk, so it's about 50 seconds in. This is the first time I heard something that definitely sounded like guitar. It kind of just comes in there for a couple measures and then disappears.
0: That guitar wasn't me, though, because I used to use a wah-wah pedal sometimes, okay. but I don't think that was me. I would guess that that is Ivan Arset. Who's a Norwegian guitarist that we've played with over the years?
1: So he's one of the guys that you're saying that you gave him stems and then for the final production and some overdubs, they went overseas. And that would have been when Ivan.
0: I have no idea where that would have come from. I don't know if it was, it's very likely it came from some other piece, you know, because John wasn't able to play when we got back from London. We were taking some trumpet stuff, definitely from other rehearsals, other places, and putting them on some of these. My whole sense of that whole record though was a little bit like that, you know, maybe we had some main idea that was either something rhythmic that we had a track of. Like he and John Vaughn went to Detroit once and they came back and they had brought back audio. Well, I like converted audio to MIDI and then played these MIDI conversions back using Omnisphere on, you know, African stringed instruments and stuff. You like that? I mean, whatever it was, you know, I would just try stuff and he'd yeah I like that, I like that, I like that. Or I got this one thing when it was new, it was made by uh, New Sonic Arts, it's called Vice. If you put a piece of audio into Vice, it looks for transient attacks, and then it slices it up automatically and then assigns each slice to a MIDI note. And I would put an arpeggiator in front of that, so the thing just bounced around between slices, you know? And it was really rhythmically precise. You could have it be any division of the beat you wanted, and it was a really great sound. We used that a lot when that first became available, you know, because I had played it for him, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's great.
1: Is that purely a post-production technique, or is that something that with Ableton or something you could actually on the fly, just kind of pull out of your hat live?
0: Almost. It's not a live processing, but you could record like 10 seconds and drop it in there and be doing it almost as fast as you'd heard it. But that's not how we usually did it.
1: Are there any actual drums on this sound or this is all electronic drums? Because it's pretty prominent as it goes on.
0: No. The only time we did shows with actual live drums of any kind was we did a couple of tours with steve shahan the really good percussionist i think he goes out with paul simon and people like that we did a couple of tours with him i know he had live percussion instruments maybe he had some electronic stuff too i don't remember but when we were rehearsing here i don't believe we ever had any percussionists.
1: jump forward to uh, 115 it seemed like there was a new rhythm coming in there That seems like there's a B section. You know, if there was any kind of movement between pieces in here, that's where it enters something else for a little while. Again, is that a live communication or you think that was actually post-production?
0: It could have been recorded that way during some rehearsal. It's even possible that it was done at a concert, but nothing was ever the same twice. You know, when we had a piece, there would be some elements that would be there. There would be something that was pre-recorded when we did a concert. John never wanted to go out without having something there. Back in the old days, we would use variable CD players that would have pre-recorded tracks that would start maybe the piece or something.
1: Let's get the second song out there, Manga Scene. Do you want to say a little about that track before
2: we hear that? I think the biggest problem or the biggest thing I can think about is like trying to make a find a title for it. So I was thinking about this futuristic Japanese comics and the illustrations. That's where the, the title came from. I, I think I was searching for a thing that which might group the sounds that were there into a definable thing. So I don't know, what does manga seem to you?
1: Certainly you can listen to any instrumental and... Somebody gives you an image and you can kind of impose that, you know, when I generally think of manga, I think of something that is super packaged, you know, like the latest commercial gadget, you know, that is designed to appeal to very young people who are easily bored and very bright eyed, literally giant eyes and things like that. Uh, you know, it's the Japanese descendant of Walt Disney, I guess is how that style, the guy that invented manga. So I can certainly impose that on here because you've got little cell phone sounding gleeps and glo- little things that are passing, but overall not like this is way more chaotic. I feel like, you know, I guess that just depends how one interprets both the song and manga. talk about that introduction a little bit before the horn comes in
0: it sounds like some of john's keyboard playing it's been filtered and put through something and the drums are probably i don't know where those came from maybe john vaughn added some percussion you know that's it sounds like they weren't real you know i mean they weren't there was nobody playing that here
1: well, and it's playing with bass, so that would make sense if he sort of put that together.
0: He didn't play the bass that much. He more like, you know, we all have laptops, so we're all dropping crap in all the time, and I'm processing John live. I have a feed of whatever he's doing coming into my computer that's coming in on a channel that I can process right while it's happening. He always had a MIDI keyboard hooked up that was playing, uh I think it was just a piano sound. There might have been an electric piano too, but... One was always a fourth lower, so you had a harmonized piano. He would do these little figures, you know, figurations on the keyboard. He doesn't come from music theory or anything like that. He's really intuitive, you know, an incredibly, just incredible year, you know. John is an amazing musician.
1: Well, and he's the one that I thought I understood what he was doing because I, you know, watched some live clips of... Some recent band of, of John's, and there was definite bass lines that I can pick out. That's about the only thing that I really know, seem to know what's going on.
0: <laughs> Baselines were a huge thing for many years. Peter Freeman played ostinato bass lines for practically every piece. These just unchanging bass lines that went through the whole thing. And, and but John was kind of moving away from that. You know, he was like not that into it anymore in the latter years. And John Vaughn, although was a bass player, I don't see him playing bass here that often. You know, I'm sure he did some, but he was often doing more of the percussion track stuff. What I associate with him.
1: So this is a little longer one. Unknown Wish was just less than three minutes. This one is pushing almost six minutes, five and three quarters. Has a lot more places to move and some definite different stages, I guess, as this is proceeding. There's definitely a lot of more elements in this one in the synth lines that you had that electronically treated piano thing that I kept referring to in the first song. But this one's got about six different things like that. I mean, between little, you know, when you hit a single note on the keyboard, but it plays an arpeggio or plays a, you know, some kind of run. There's several of those kind of things and they just kind of pass, which again, kind of amazes me that you've got these at your fingertips as opposed to, uh, you know, I've I've talked to electronic composers that will sit back and it's a lot of wading through different sounds to figure out in a, you know, in a studio, it's sort of the opposite of jazz, but you've somehow taken this thing that could be a very programmed, literally programmed, as well as lots of post-production, lots of tweaking after the fact, bringing in samples and somehow are doing this on the fly. Do you recall with this one, was it you playing the keyboards on this one still, or was this somebody else? Probably me. I don't remember Let me just play a couple little sections here. So, this is just about 56 seconds in. I just wrote in my notes passing crazy synth. Okay, so clearly you're playing a trumpet line. That must be somebody else that's doing the yeah. electric piano-based thing, but that's adding extra notes, and then it sounds like somebody's waving a metal sheet around or something. <laughs> the percussion.
2: I don't know how to answer that. Okay. It's I, just a matter of, of having, you know, of having three or four musicians whose ears are, are widely open to the world, and they have instrumental abilities and, uh, and electronic abilities all combined and that's what happens you get into a longer scene with that so it's pretty hard to say oh that's the keyboard this is this over here that kind of thing it's just a matter of like a kind of a painting right to make a painting that, that in which all the parts seem to fit in some way or another
1: Yes, but I guess a painting is one of those program things. Like, you know, even if, of course, there are Rothko or, you know, somebody that is being very improvisational in how they put it together, but it's still generally one person. So that whether it's, in this case, the producer after the fact, I mean, are there at least points in some of these where you might say during the mix, yeah, get rid of that riff. That didn't need to be there. Or this part sounds a little bare. We need to add something.
2: They're not all. Just taken as they were in the studio, and anything is open to like being sectioned or extended, or you know, it's all there. So it's just a matter of deciding when to stop. There can be infinite mutations going on. So you just take a little scenario and go with that, and then give it a title that has associations that nudges the brain in a certain direction. So it's an invitation to listen and think of what it could be. I mean, a why it a mongo scene and everything, and then you have to think of the kind of uh, wild style of mongo.
1: Although it seems like you're still very slow drawn out horn riffs as opposed to if you're trying to do a Ornette Coleman, you know, that kind of expressing chaos, but you seem to leave that mostly to the keyboards and other things to do the fluttering. Because certainly on your earlier work, we're going to talk about Toucan Ocean in a minute here. That's much more The horn is the thing that's doing the fluttering, whereas this, the horn tends to anchor things, tends to make this, oh, okay, this is actually a sort of singable, relatable part, and everything else can be chaos.
2: All that sounds good to me, <laughs> you know, meaning that, uh, that the variety of approaches and, and where it's coming from and all that kind of thing. So I don't think you can really, you can go too far in trying to find a thread that goes back to a particular place each time. I mean, I understand that it's necessary to analyze, I mean, for analysis and, and for uh, exegesis, the indefinability of something, if it's of interest in some way, then the way that you can analyze it and sort of create the, I understand, you know, it's where you're coming from. You're into like an analytic and an associative frame of mind that that you want to impart to an audience, and thank God for you to do that. That's the, the role of the interested listener. You know, the ambiguity is part of the beauty, the mystery, right? I mean, you don't want to go too far.
1: I think my approach when, because I listened through all of your albums that I could get my hands on, which was not all of them, but a lot of them in preparation for this. And my general approach is just to sort of chill out and take it in. Going through this exercise with even a few of your tunes and really focusing in like, okay, what's going on in this section? Are there is this broken into sections? Because this one definitely has... You know, an establishing thing, and then it kind of gets faster a little bit and it has this rising, interesting ending. And I know that was just the energy of the moment, but by at least thinking of that once, I think that it helps me make better sense when listening to any of your music. The danger for any, I think, instrumental artist, you know, there's not a vocal hook for it just to all kind of run together and... This is just relaxing, but there's just so much interesting stuff going on here that's not just relaxing, right? It's not new age. There's a lot of actually very frantic, punkish elements here. So I don't know if we can do much here than Marvel at it. but I'm just happy to get to talk through some of this with you.
0: I have everything I've recorded of John's in the last 20 years, which is every... Well, we didn't always rehearse here. Sometimes we would rehearse in Europe, but whenever we were... Here in L.A., I have this one big hard drive that has every Ableton session that we did since, you know, 2000.
1: So just having heard those, a few, you know, there was this weird crickety sound. So these are you're saying these are just things that were captured over the years as as you're messing around with Ableton stuff and and were crammed together.
0: Like I said, it's just a pastiche, you know, It, it could have happened that way live during some rehearsal. It could have even happened live during a concert. I mean, those kinds of sounds, or 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 it could have come from somewhere else entirely. You know, it, that's why it's so hard for me to try to go trace back. In fact, even for us, it was always difficult to trace the breadcrumbs back. I mean, telling you, putting this record together, that was one of the main difficulties. Was trying to find like the original versions. Trying to find original, you know, tracks. You know, where did this come from? I'm serious. That, that was a big deal.
1: That's good to know that John's reticence in saying who was doing what and where this came from. Really, it's just difficult.
0: <laughs> Some are less like that than others. I mean, there's certainly I can tell you, When Hugh Marsh has got a distinctive sound. I'm doing all kinds of different things. So it's hard to say, you know, and I'm processing stuff a lot. So even when I play guitar live, you often didn't hear the sound of the straight guitar. I would be going pre-fader to like maybe a half a dozen different effects. So, and all you're hearing is effects returns. You're not even hearing the dry guitar sound. A lot of it was rhythmic processing. So it was all chopped up.
1: Can I ask you in this one? So I I saw about... Four minutes, 42 seconds in, I wrote fuzz guitar, but I wasn't really sure if that was still, uh, it was actually guitar. Do you think that's actually guitar or just distortion?
0: I don't even know what that is. It sounds like a distorted mouth harp, a little bit, <laughs> bang bang. Right, right. she have been hearing that sound before.
1: Let's get the third one out there. It's just from a totally different era. Toucan Ocean, Vernal Equinox, 1977, your first full solo album. I can sort of picture that this is, again, a single pass improvisation. And like I said, the trumpet is playing a very different role here. Can you say a little about the environment and the players? I see, was it David Rosenboom and Nana Vasconcelos? Is that right? Who's doing this with you? And then it says you're doing trumpet and piano. So this must have been more than one pass. Electric piano. Yeah. Any thoughts about where you were at, you know, at the point of recording this album? You felt the need to do a solo album here, and you're unleashing this really interesting trumpet effect. Can you say a little about that before
2: folks hear it? The more angles that something... I mean, of course, you're, you're, you're an active participant, too. I mean, the listener ish, could be, should be. I mean, it's obviously, there are other musics that just give you some sort of a cloud to lie on or something, you know, to imagine or to dream within or, or anything like that. So I think the listener who is ready to just listen to any another Miles Davis, it's a symbiotic thing where you're in, in a connection. Your interpretation of it as well as the impression that's actually being given to another person is... I guess a kind of a delicate balance and of course we have to be even to talk about it as seriously as that you have to be uh, astute enough to like understand you know a higher note from a lower note and a saxophone from a keyboard.
1: Again, I chose the shortest, easiest one here, kind of like with Unknown Wish. This is the opening track of the album. We're just introducing the atmosphere. They've all, of course, got something very different. But, you know, by side two, you've got a 22-minute jam. This one is pretty consistent, right? The trumpet is staying basically the same place. There's a very strong stereo effect on this. Is this some kind of stereo phaser or something? What are you running through? Do you recall on this?
2: I don't recall, but yes, sounds like that's what's there. Something would be like that, sure. The wah effect is coming out of the, the box. Yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be the sort of talking trumpet thing going on there. And toucan Ocean is kind of a fanciful way of, of saying toucan, like as in the bird. A toucan Ocean, right? I think there's sea sound in there also someplace towards the end, right? If I'm, I'm not mistaken. That's all part of the... It's a kaleidoscope of musical input and musical output and any critical thinking, I guess.
1: From what I was reading, your big influence going into this album was raga, that you're using semitones. In a trumpet, you can bend your mouth, you know, just like a stringed instrument, so you don't have to just keep to the 12 tones. What's hard for a Westerner to get the ear around in this is basically doing what a, a raga vocalist would do. Can you say a little about that journey of developing this really unique style here?
2: Well, I studied with Pandit Pranath, a great raga singer, for a long time. And when we would have a lesson, I would, naturally, I attempted to do this, I think, mean is the word, uh, a slide to turn the rooty toot tootness of the trumpet into uh, something which is more listless and liquid, so to speak. So it's a mixture of things. I don't think prana would like it very much the wah sound coming out at all. But I did spend a lot of time learning to like make slides smoothly so that I could be blowing a C and fingering a D D and and then blowing up into the D and that kind of thing. That was also due to Terry Riley, who became a disciple of prana and of course who has mastered the raga. So here and there, along the way, it's things, getting involved in things. Vernal Equinox is a strange, accidental arrangement. First of all, there was a studio. It was in Toronto and at York University, and David Rosenboom was uh, the director or teacher of that at the school. So we had rehearsal time up there, and then a few other electronic gadgets and things. That those were important times for me to try and figure out how to do that on a trumpet, which is not an instrument that you do slides on and, and moving from one note to another, to another, that kind of thing. And so it's just a kind of simulation of a continuous line.
1: And is that tinniness entirely from the effect you're using, or did you also have a mute
2: on when you do... Oh, no, no, that was an envelope follower. It makes everything into a wah.
1: What's obviously raga to me about this is not just the sound of your trumpet and the semitones and the sliding, but just the meditative aspect of this, which seems to go very well with the sort of Miles Davis Bitches brew or, you know, his other on the corner where you just have, it could go five minutes, it could go 20 minutes, but it's just this fairly static unlike a manga scene, which had some definite movement throughout it. You know, it had this steady bass riff, at least at the beginning, but, it, you know, it it definitely had some moving out somewhere else and then returning, where Tukin Ocean here, you know, is very still almost, you know, despite the number of notes you're playing. You know, this is way more trumpet notes per minute than in either of the other songs, but it's uh, got a very, you know, centered, meditative stability to it. Is that something that came out of, again, that studying raga?
2: It's only about trying to make a connection between two adjacent notes on an instrument which was not made for that and to simulate it by sliding, fingering one note and then blowing up into it. And so it's impossible to have the shaping and the art of raga there. It's just honoring the attempt to get close to the raga form itself.
1: And do you recall on this one that, at least the, where I was looking on Wikipedia, it said you played the electric piano and the trumpet on this. Is that actually the case, so that you had to do this in two passes, where you were doing the rhythms first and then adding the trumpet, or was this just
2: live? I'm sure it was two passes or four. Or, know, mm-hmm. The tuning of the keyboard was also a factor here, and that was done by another a musician. can't recall his name right now, but he was the kind of expert in tuned the roads in a special way, the tempered way, where you're dividing up the space of an octave in equal parts, That's called tempered tuning. The way that keyboard thing on that was based on a non-tempered tuning. So it was
1: actually optimized for, it sounds like it's mostly two chords, but then you're kind of thickening them in places and changing the rhythm up, you know, in some places to give some variation. But it's not like it has a drone. It's not that kind of raga where you've got a you know, that goes through a didgeridoo kind of a thing, or the sitar, the bottom drone of that. But it's a very similar stability i guess it doesn't have obviously different ethnic overtones was there some particular indian instrument that you were trying to make the trumpet sound like in choosing that sound because it definitely has like if you didn't tell me this was a trumpet i might have thought that okay this is a nay flute or something like that
2: well it was also an envelope follower that's what made it open and close as if you were pushing down on a pedal to do wah wah right it does its own form of like wah effect in a more subtle way
1: All right, well, we're going to wrap up with one of the longer pieces. I wanted something from the previous phase. This is a little over a decade back. Uh, It's the title track from Last Night, The Moon Came Dropping Its Clothes in the Street. Very meditative, very relaxing. Do you want to say a little about this?
0: I had a lot of samples from movies I'd worked on or things I'd sampled while I was at orchestra sessions. Those two string chords, that's Tom Newman at an orchestra session for I think it was Little Women or something like that. And I liked those chords and recorded them. And when we were in France doing the record, I was going through some samples and John and Manfred Iker heard that and was like, what's that? What's that? And I actually had to call Tom in LA from France to ask him if it would be okay to use these two chords because I didn't want to do it without asking them. They're simple chords, but somehow it's so unusual to me that there's so much information in those two chords like you can even tell it's him and if you transcribe what's there there's not even anything really there that's that unique but it's interesting that way
1: I'll say this is one of my favorite pieces from here because it doesn't have as much of the the sputtering, angry, the frantic undertones that are in some of the other ones but it has that slow blues and some sort of sketches of Spain kind of stuff.
2: That was another era and the uh, last night the moon came On ECM, and there was a completely different vibe going on there at then. That wah sound would sound so stupid (laughs) within that. You know, can you imagine? You're trying to evoke the moon, and you get this wah, 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 wah. So it's a matter of how you put things together.
1: I guess that's interesting that the fourth world aesthetic is really that you can add anything. It seems the easiest way to market your stuff has been kind of as some form of new age. It's relaxing, which is what I associate, I guess, ECM a little more with. Was that constricting at this point? No, no. No. Okay. All right. Well, great to hear both extremes of the manga chaos to this more still very eventful, but relaxing thing. Thanks so much for talking to me. Sure, Mark. Thanks so much to John and to Rick. I was a long-time admirer of John's and very pleased to discover Rick's catalog. I had actually spoken to John prior to talking to Chris Franz from Talking Heads, who I just released an interview with. I was excited to, when I was prepping for that Chris Franz interview, re-listen to, like, Remain in Light by Talking Heads, where John has a solo on that. Peter Gabriel's Passion, one of my all-time favorite soundtracks one of the really important songs. John has a very prominent part in that. And I'm a big David Sylvian fan. He did work with him. And I just like this whole fourth world idea. It's like jazz, but it's really quite a different thing than any of the historical jazz, though I think John is very much an heir to a student of Miles Davis in his most interesting period. So like I said at the beginning, I finished this interview and found that John had revealed Very little about how this music was technically made, so I took the unprecedented-for-me step of reaching out to some of his bandmates. I had interviews set up with Rick here and also with Hugh Marsh, the violin player, before finding, not until after I had talked to both John and Rick, that Hugh does not actually play on the songs we discussed here, at least not on the first song. So both Rick and Hugh and John Von Ziegem, who I had not considered because I thought he was, quote, just the bass player, but apparently he is also a super creative composer slash multi-instrumentalist himself. All three of those guys would probably make fascinating episodes for this podcast themselves. I'm sure that I will circle back to one or more of them in the future, though I do like to leave a decent interval between members of the same band However, if you become a supporter of mine at patreon.com slash music, you can hear right now me talking more with Rick specifically about the song Fearless, which was the first single off John's new album, and Rick was the chief architect of that particular song. So I don't anticipate doing more of these multi-interview episodes. It was quite a lot more work trying to figure out how to combine the footage and not be too confusing about it. My next interview will be with another guy who got his big break through a release with Brian Eno. It is Laraji, who is primarily known for playing the Zither. He typically does very long meditative pieces, but has released a couple albums of piano music recently. He is a super interesting, very charming guy. I hope you come back and check that out. Again, you should subscribe directly to this podcast by looking up Nakedly Examined Music via the podcast app of your choice or going to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Hope you're all doing well. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Lentenmeyer signing off.